On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. The next time I start to feel bad about myself. Stand before the mirror, look myself in the eye and say, you are special. I'm one of a kind. But even after doing this for more than 20 years, no one's been able to prove that it does work. Today I'm selling a super duper fabulous fantastic thing. Me. Repeat after me. I can't. Stanley. I like myself. I like myself. I like myself. I can be anything I want to be. I like myself. Recall for me now, dear listener, the feeling of classroom self-help exercises from your elementary school afternoons. Maybe, like me, you can remember a koosh ball tossed ever so nicely across a circle of your 10-year-old peers, blank and bored looks all around. As you catch it, like they're supposed to, the thrower mumbles something they like about you. I think you're good at soccer. You're nice. I think you're smart at math. You're funny. I like your Tiny Toons high-top sneakers. Maybe you also remember the worksheet you'd be given after you sat down, printed with a large oval, an arc of words above it. This is the most special person in the world. Draw your face here. Starting in the late 1980s, teachers, parents, administrators, politicians, celebrities, kids show hosts, and pretty much everyone was ready to announce to children that if they just believe in themselves, all their dreams will come true. But it wasn't just the kids. The self-help industry, which orbits steadily around the promise of improving self-esteem, brings in $10 billion a year. Prominent voices of the self-esteem movement promised not only a happier and more successful life, but a better national future. Less poverty, less violence, less crime, lower rates of drug use and teen pregnancy, better grades in school, and a more competent workforce. Now, this belief in self-esteem lives in our culture almost as an unquestioned truth. But what if an idea this pervasive, one that's affected our psychology, culture, politics, education, and personalities this profoundly, is based on a bald-faced lie? That's right, my friends. An actual conspiracy. This episode will focus on one story in particular, the story of a charismatic leader on a journey of self-actualization and the actualization of the human race itself. 
a new age hippie who nonetheless knew how to sell his vision to both sides of the political spectrum. We'll see how attractive but scientifically unsound revelations in pop psychology can sweep through America like little great awakenings, movements almost religious in nature, all of us scrambling for yet another hasty utopia. Are there children anywhere whose dreams are locked away? Free the children, free the children. Only when they love themselves will dreams and talent stay with the children. Free the children. He has steadfastly like believed horses. in the dignity of the individual, as underscored by his legislative legacy. John recognized the importance of self-esteem, the need to believe in one's ability to achieve and succeed against all odds. Growing up in San Jose, California in the 1940s, John Vasconcelos, also known as Vasco, was, by all accounts, a devout and well-behaved Catholic altar boy. He graduated with honors from his preparatory school, and then he graduated top of his class from law school in 1959, even spending two years becoming an army lieutenant. But, like many Catholics, no matter how doggedly Vasco followed the rules, he was still plagued by a strong voice inside of him that never let him forget. Underneath it all, he was a sinner, bad, evil, rotten at the core. In a story that exemplifies the young Vasco, he once ran for class president and lost by only one vote, his own vote because he said it had been drilled into him to never think or speak well of himself. And it wasn't just the drudge of teendom that got Vasco down. Even at age 33, when he was elected to the California State Assembly, he was still haunted by anxiety, feeling that he didn't deserve the success that he'd been given. Vasco felt himself coming apart at the seams, on the verge of a major mental breakdown. Unfortunately for his colleagues, this self-loathing was accompanied by a hair-trigger temper that got so bad at times that members of the assembly floor had to actually hold his hand and console him. The stormy and tortured Vasco knew something had to change. Luckily, this was California, the birthplace of the New Age human potential movement, which offered a fusion of psychology, science, and spirituality with the goal of maximizing, well, our human potential. The human potential movement cast a wide net. It could be as simple as learning to communicate better in relationships or as complicated as astral projecting your consciousness into the soul of the universe and returning with mystic messages. But whether mainstream or fringe, adherents of this movement viewed reality in a fundamentally different way from the evangelical Christians that made up the other side of the spiritual and eventually political divide. 
It was through this new dedication to seeking that he would make friends with the famous humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers, who Vasco would eventually consider a second father. It was Carl Rogers that presented him with this new reality, that humans were not born bad and evil, but rather good. They were born with potential. An institute dedicated to the realization of an ancient and irrepressible dream that the limits of human ability lie beyond the boundaries of our imagination, that each of us achieves only a fraction of what is ours to achieve. Vasco was all in, and so he undertook the most important rite of passage for any bourgeoisie bohemian of the 1970s, classes at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, a new age spa and wellness center that pumped out self-actualized stars, thinkers, authors, speakers, psychologists, gurus, and philosophers. Vasco came out of his programs at the Esalen Institute a looser man, shoulders unrolled, now letting his hair grow long and donning a bushy mustache. He started attending meetings wearing a lei and an open Hawaiian shirt, a gold necklace tangled in his generous chest hair. A colleague once recalled that he looked like a cross between a rock star and a drug smuggler. Among the other grim faces on the Senate floor, Vasco was officially the resident eccentric, the wacky one, the aging hippie with soppy utopian dreams, reportedly zipping around in his convertible with the top down in the rain. But what was responsible for this incredible shift? Well, Vasco had finally found his self-esteem. He now knew what his life's mission would be. The religion of self-esteem would be the key to unlocking a far brighter future for America. All we had to do was get everyone to love themselves enough to believe in their own human potential. And I believe that if we truly uh, open ourselves deeply and find the good that's deeply within us and esteem ourselves, and we let out of that esteem with each other, we have no need then to beat up on each other or to go to war. That we can, with self-esteem, uh, support each other and love each other and be present for each other in supportive ways rather than adversarial and destructive ways. But come on, his conservative colleagues were not about to sign on for something this idiotic, something this saccharine, something so explicitly liberal. The gateway to the bipartisanship that he needed was a signature from the no-nonsense California state governor George Duke Mangian, nicknamed the Duke, who just so happened to fucking hate John Vasconcelos. And the feeling was mutual, especially after the Duke vetoed his proposal. But Vasco was a skilled politician, and in his own words, he knew he had to get shrewd. He would hold a series of one-on-one -on -one meetings with the Duke, trying his best to meet him on a more traditional level. 
though self-esteem had emerged as a very liberal concept, Vasco had actually first been introduced to the concept of self-esteem by who we shall call the cult figure Ayn Rand's young lover and intellectual pool boy. For those who don't know, Ayn Rand was a Russian-American author of two best-selling novels, The Fountainhead in 1943 and Atlas Shrugged in 1957, two books that would go on to become the cornerstones of libertarian thought, which stayed on the bestsellers list for 22 straight weeks. These books would go on to become the cornerstones of libertarian thought, and Atlas Shrugged would stay on the New York Times bestsellers list for 22 straight weeks. Ayn Rand's personal philosophy was a contribution called objectivism, quote, the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute. Rand and her adherents believed in ethical egoism, that humans are morally required to fulfill their own self-interest at all times, and that went for corporations too. She condemned government intervention of all kinds and revered the free market. She hated the idea of collectivism and using tax money for social safety nets. In many ways, Ayn Rand saw the 80s coming, a capitalist survival of the fittest mentality taking over. This thing called me was becoming another market to manage. Her aforementioned lover was named Nathaniel Brandon, and he was 30 years her junior, and, as she said, her intellectual heir. They had a decades-long affair, even though they were both married, and it was kind of a polyamorous situation, and it's pretty juicy. Anyway, he was the first to popularize the idea that self-esteem could solve problems from spousal abuse to child sex crimes, to intimacy issues, to substance abuse, anxiety, depression, suicide, crime, and violence. In fact, he stated boldly that he could not think of a singular psychological problem that could not be solved by raising self-esteem. He would write a seminal text called The Psychology of Self-Esteem, which purported to be the first research to link self-esteem to high achievement, and it would sell a million copies in the U.S. alone. People began calling Nathaniel Brandon the father of the self-esteem movement. Vasco was a Democrat, yes, but he had a lot to critique in his own party. He praised the right for their love of economic freedom, and he chided the left for treating people like they could not take care of themselves. He explained to the Duke and his other colleagues that self-esteem wasn't some psychobabble mysticism. This was a down-to-earth concept that made rational, and most importantly, fiscal sense. He made a promise that a task force on self-esteem could solve the very social problems they grumbled over daily. Educational failure, drug abuse, teen pregnancy, domestic violence, sexual assault, gang violence, rising crime rates, poverty, homelessness, pollution. You name it, self-esteem could take it. 
He went as far as to call self-esteem a social vaccine, one that he proudly boasted could save the state billions of dollars. And for a little cherry on top for the Duke, he told him that the self-esteeming of citizens would make them, quote, responsible, productive, creative, and satisfied workers, not absent from the job. Self-esteem, he said, quote, provides us a vision for developing our human capital to make America competitive again. And then one more cherry on top, quote, self-esteem is the best budget balancer by far, serving both to increase productivity and taxes and to reduce human needs for public support and services. Vasco also invited the first lady, Nancy Reagan, into the conversation, sharing this excerpt from a commencement speech that old Nance gave at Georgetown University in 1987. I've also come with a cure for drug abuse. It's a preventative that works for any age, any sex, any race, and against any drug. It's also an antidote for those struggling to overcome drugs. The remedy is self-esteem. Vasco told him that the meager $730,000 he was asking for to scientifically prove the value of self-esteem would be in the long run much cheaper than the billions spent on the social issues that self-esteem itself could solve. It was this argument that made something click for the Duke, and to the shock of his colleagues and to the state government at large, he handed over his rigid signature, making the task force to promote self-esteem and personal and social responsibility totally official. And so began a long scientific project of proving that self-esteem was all that Vasco had cracked it up to be. Seven professors out of the University of California got on board to test the empirical validity of these claims to prove causation, to prove that raising self-esteem directly affects future success and that low self-esteem directly causes future failures. When the task force was assembled, it was diverse, including both women and men of various religions, races, sexualities, and political leanings, a former cop and a Vietnam vet, and even a white man who wore a turban and believed that increasing global self-esteem would cause the sun to rise in the West. It was a true symbolic American breakfast club. And when word got out to the media of this new task force, it was fucking laughable. Vasco was skewered, called naive and absurd. His movement, quote, New Age fluff and yuppie evangelism, with pundits asking what on earth the Duke was thinking. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with 
Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. Much of America was introduced to the self-esteem movement when Gary Trudeau poked fun at the task force in his nationally syndicated Doonesbury comic strip. He introduced a character named Boopsie, a cute actress slash spiritual medium who channeled a 213,555-year-old warrior called Hunk Raw, a woman who earned her place on the self-esteem task force through, quote, 20 years of feeling good about myself and my out-of-body experiences. Vasco was livid, and he shot back at the talking heads and the journalists and the comic artists that mocked him, calling them, quote, terrible, cynical, skeptical, and cheap. Matters were not helped when it came out that after his heart attack, he had actually asked his constituents to visualize themselves swimming through his arteries with teeny tiny scrub brushes, cleaning out all the cholesterol while singing his version of Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Now let's swim ourselves up and down the streams, touch and rub and warm and melt the plaque that blocks my streams. Still, despite all the mockery, Vasco would not back down. He simply accused the media of having low self-esteem. After a long wait, the scientific results were finally in, and a quote was distributed to the media in press releases from the coordinating lead of the academic research group, Dr. Neil Smelser. Quote, the correlational findings are very positive and compelling. There was a huge task force celebration the night after that report came out, complete with elementary school children from Long Beach, fresh out of self-esteem boosting programs, who read poetry to them and then sang songs and chanted, 
We're kids. We're super cool. We're great. There's magic in me because I believe in myself. After the good news dropped to the public, Time Magazine's headline read, The sneers are turning to cheers. Positive reports were printed across the board, all with the same tone. John Vasconcelos, the joke of the new age, was now a national treasure. New fanboys included former skeptics Bill Clinton, Colin Powell, and Barbara Bush. Referred to as the Johnny Appleseed of self-esteem, Vasco went on the Today Show, on Nightline, on the BBC. He even made an appearance alongside Maya Angelou and a young Drew Barrymore on an Oprah primetime special on self-esteem, which Oprah claimed, correctly, would become one of the catch-all phrases of the 1990s. Almost immediately, 85% of all California school districts enacted programs dedicated specifically to building self-esteem. And it's an opportunity and a challenge each one of us has in our own lives to dig deep inside and know who we are and know more and more of our own depths and goodness and bring it forward and lead lives of boldness and vision, not in and hot tubs on the weekends, though that's fine to do, but every day, every place, every hour, every relationship. Classrooms now installed things like mirrors with signs on them that read things like, quote, you are now looking at one of the most special people in the whole wide world. It became popular to banish the use of red ink when correcting student papers, to no longer write criticisms or corrections, lest you might hurt their self-esteem. The famously mocked participation trophies indeed became the norm in sports and academics. Groups as different as the Girl Scouts and the benevolent and protective Order of the Elks, local Little Leagues, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the Jewish Community Center Association all created their own variations of self-esteem programs. Even within the police force, cops had claimed to have cured drug abuse by telling criminals, You are special. You are a wonderful individual. They even trotted out masked members of the L.A. Crips and Bloods to talk to kids about how low self-esteem had led them into a life of crime and violence. By 1992, a Gallup poll would find that 89% of Americans regarded self-esteem as very important for success in life. By 1994, 30 states had passed 170 laws related to boosting self-esteem. Things are different in classrooms these days. Now when kids sing about heroes, they're not thinking about Abe Lincoln. They're singing about themselves. Time once spent on reading and writing now goes to things like giving warm fuzzies, also known as compliments. I like your hair. Me. But there is just one small problem. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's just that the day that those results came in, you know, before the choir of kids sang those self-praises and before the task force clinked their champagne flutes heartily, they'd actually received quite a devastating report. 
Now, it was true that Dr. Smelser had said, quote, the correlational findings are very positive and compelling. But that was a tiny soundbite of a much bigger and far grimmer explanation. He had actually called the results worryingly mixed. In almost all areas, from academics to job performance, crime recidivism, teenage pregnancy, chronic illnesses, drug use, violent behavior, all the research found insignificant or non-existent connections. Even for those findings that were positive and compelling, Dr. Smelser clarified that they could not prove that low self-esteem had caused poor grades or if poor grades had caused low self-esteem. There was no way to prove causation. And if Vasco didn't have proof of causation, that was it. He would be right back where he had started. A laughing stock. All this work would be in vain. And the future of his beautiful self-esteem movement that he still believed in would be done for good. And so, before those findings could be published to a wide audience, the task force put out a different report, edited and tidied up, called Toward a State of Self-Esteem, that painted the evidence in a far more positive light. One former task force member who had refused to sign Vasco's version of the report called the findings a fucking lie. A former chairman and right-hand man of Vasco, Andrew Mecca, admitted that the task force spent $30,000 of the budget to pay five publicists to work full-time to make sure that the media was getting the right messaging. Much of this episode is indebted to the investigative work of Will Storr, author of Selfie, which includes deep research into the self-esteem movement. While trying to get to the bottom of this story, Will had not only tracked down former task force members to get their side of the story, but he also discovered a cassette tape of the very meeting in which Dr. Smelser told them that the findings were inconclusive in no uncertain terms. It was clear that the tone was anything but celebratory. The tone of the press release was not so uncertain, claiming boldly, quote, the relationship between poor self-esteem and society's problems has definitely been confirmed. As he dug even deeper, Will discovered something even more nefarious, the political and financial tension between the University of California and John Vasconcelos. It turns out that Vasco was also the head of the Ways and Means Committee, which meant he was in charge of the entire University of California's budget. According to Dr. Smelser, Vasco began putting careful pressure on the president of the college, who then put pressure back onto the dissenting scientists, who eventually caved and signed the report to protect the university's budget. Former chairman Andrew Mecca confirmed this, 
asserting that the university was indeed afraid of Vasco and what he could do, and eventually conceded. They just had to let it go. And it would be more than a decade before there was any meaningful scientific movement against this self-esteem supremacy. We're also coming to understand that our welfare system weakens community values and self-esteem. As a lack of skills prevents our young people from obtaining the jobs and careers they want, their hope for themselves and their neighbors disappears. To reverse this terrible cycle of despair, we must make dramatic changes in the old, unworkable government programs. The bipartisan self-esteem movement was indeed the brainchild of liberals, but it was conservatives that really employed it to reach the political and economic goals of the Reagan and Bush administrations. Because the task force held special meetings with Ayn Rand's sexy little brainiac Nathaniel Brandon, who then worked directly with fanboy Vasco. Brandon told them that the road to success meant, quote, encouraging the child to be in love with his or her existence and to, quote, create a world in which people understand that to honor the self is to practice selfishness in the highest, noblest and least understood sense of the word. Brandon made it clear that to survive in the new greed-is-good era, it was no longer going to be about community and collectivism as it had been in the 70s. Now it was all about getting and staying ahead. And when you thought about it like that, building self-esteem just made sense. It wasn't just ushy-gushy liberal drool. It was practical, rational, and innovative. Ronald Reagan would again and again evoke the idea of self-esteem when railing against and then slashing welfare programs. Welfare. Welfare is another of our major problems. We're a humane and a generous people, and we accept without reservation our obligation to help the disabled, the aged, and those unfortunates who through no fault of their own must depend on their fellow men. But we are not going to perpetuate poverty by substituting a permanent dole for a paycheck. As a beginning step in rehabilitation, to give to the individual the self-respect which goes with performing a useful service. But this isn't the ultimate answer. Only private industry in the last analysis can produce jobs with a future. It was used to promote Ayn Rand's vision of unlimited free market capitalism, with individual financial success as the highest order of good, which meant tax cuts for corporations, which in turn would provide jobs to those lazy welfare kings and queens who were lacking what else but self-esteem, the self-esteem that was promised to come from trickle-down economics. This rhetoric was also useful when conservative politicians were taken to task over the massive prison expansions and rising inmate populations all over the country due to the war on drugs and the war on crime. They presented new rehabilitation programs that centered on boosting inmates' self-esteem, and these helped warm the public up to the new prison labor system by claiming that the assigned work would provide inmates with purpose 
dignity, and most importantly, a high dose of self-esteem that would eventually help them thrive on the outside. But the truth of the matter was that once they were released from prison, those with felonies on their record could find little opportunity in the low-income areas where businesses had fled, compounded with the post-incarceration restrictions on what jobs they were allowed to hold, and not to mention the stigma that discouraged them from being hired at all. More after this. And now, back to the show. In an Education Week article from 1991, Harry Specht, the dean of the School of Social Welfare at the University of California at Berkeley, already saw the cracks in the self-esteem movement. He saw the blaming of individuals for the systemic issues that were actually keeping them down. He bemoaned the pressure put on schools to use California's $6.3 million school restructuring fund for self-esteem building programs. Quote, the state government cuts money for kids on welfare. On the other hand, they put money into this self-esteem nonsense. That's infuriating. If you want to create low self-esteem in a child, let him go hungry. He continued, On one hand, it's not socially pernicious. On the other hand, it detracts from some socially useful approaches to social problems. Some proponents of self-esteem quickly clapped back at these kind of criticisms, claiming that blaming structural problems for issues of poverty and violence is just a form of self-victimization, essentially an excuse not to try, apparently psychologically disempowering to those already disempowered. But self-esteem would finally face its empirical reckoning in 2005 when the Scientific American published an article called Exploding the Self-Esteem Myth. Dr. Roy F. Baumeister and his team re-examined the decade's worth of data and conducted new experiments over a two-year period to retest this hypothesis once again. Does self-esteem correlate to specific positive outcomes? Examining 15,000 self-esteem-focused articles published between 1970 and 2000, they found that only 200 of those actually met the criteria for a legitimate scientific or academic study. Now, it's important to note that Dr. Baumeister wasn't some kind of cynical critic. In fact, he had long been a believer in the self-esteem movement, and he called these findings the biggest disappointment of his career. After that two-year project, Dr. Baumeister had another idea, a simple one, that we had it backwards. It wasn't that high self-esteem led to better performance, but that improving performance increased self-esteem. Instead of doing good because we feel good, we feel good because we do good, which up until the 1960s had largely been considered an obvious truth. Now, to be clear, it's not that learning to accept yourself, it's not that cultivating love for yourself and caring for yourself is worthless. 
Research does suggest that people with high self-esteem are less likely to be depressed and report higher levels of overall happiness. So all that work that we've been doing with our own self-esteem and the self-esteem of others, it doesn't appear to be worthless. It may very likely help people feel better, but according to the research, that may be the extent of its power when it comes to what America calls success and failure. And I will say, as a foundational structure for life, it sure beats that whole born evil and bad thing that Vasco was so desperately trying to escape. Dr. Baumeister also pointed out that many of us who struggle to believe in our own self-worth actually do quite well out there, working extra hard to improve ourselves while developing empathy for others. Because it's actually not very motivating to work toward doing something special if you're already perfect just the way you are. Psychologists have instead started encouraging people to praise the things that children and adults actually do, the things that can be measurably improved with effort-based encouragement that will help them face real-world challenges beyond the realm of feelings. Because after all, America has far more self-esteem-based programs than anywhere else in the world, and yet we continue to fall behind in academic achievement. Dr. Baumeister also warns his readers that self-esteem work may lead to narcissistic results. Because think about it, many of those who do the most damage in our society seem to think very highly of themselves. But to be fair, that's a more defensive Trumpian kind of self-esteem than the foundational self-love that we're talking about today. This superiority complex is not the same thing as healthy self-esteem. But how are we really supposed to tell the difference in a scientific trial when self-reports of how we feel about ourselves are all that scientists have to go by? Self-esteem is a totally abstract concept, difficult to test and impossible to quantify. Whereas there are many other types of tactile solutions for social problems where tax money would be more intelligently and more empathetically spent. Better funding for public schools, better job programs, a living wage, better social safety nets, affordable health care, and affordable housing. Simply believing in yourself enough to make all your wildest dreams come true is a story that we have got to stop telling. But for conservatives and Democrats alike, self-esteem worked as a repackaged American dream that once said, if you just work hard enough at your job, you will be rewarded with success. Amend that too. If you believe in yourself, if you work hard enough on your own psychology, you will be rewarded with success, whether that be spiritual or financial. 
in a competitive capitalist society where everything was about industry and innovation in the midst of a human potential movement and a greed is good era, it was all about innovation of the self. This American spirit of progress lives in all of us, whether we're chanting about self-love in a hot tub full of naked nonconformists at an Esalen retreat, or yelling shirtless into a mirror about how fucking awesome we are before heading into a meeting with important investors, or even if you're just a person hoping to find a little more peace in your heart. Anything that promises us progress is going to get a lot of attention. Pop psychologies offer us a singular, magical, immediate fix, a veritable golden salve. But these grand and extremely lucrative mind cures are still another way for us to find a simple, feel-good solution to a tangled constellation of structural problems and personal ones, too. The ones that are so daunting, the ones we really don't understand, the ones that take long-term, grueling, and often boring work to try to correct. When it comes to Vasco, I guess I, of all people, can't really blame him for his unbridled enthusiasm. I've been an obsessive self-actualizer since I was a kid, and I know the feeling of a spiritual breakthrough, and I know that teary-eyed hope that you feel that this knowledge might actually help save the world. Just imagine if we lived a life without a vicious inner critic, without the constant fear of your own unworthiness, of your imminent failure, without the anxious second-guessing of every single thing. It was personal to Vasco, and it's personal to me. And I bet, dear listener, if you are the neurotic seeker I assume you to be, it's also personal to you. So yeah, it sucks. It sucks that self-esteem doesn't fix our country's problems, and it sucks that perhaps the very concept was actually used to make them worse. It sucks, and I didn't like reading about it very much, nor did I really like writing this episode very much, because it feels really bad to challenge your own deeply held beliefs. And it also feels bad to challenge other people's deeply held beliefs. Oh my god. It feels bad enough that we barely even think about actually doing it. Most often, we choose to believe whatever makes us feel better, what brings us some comfort and control in all this chaos. And in this way, pop psychologies are not unlike conspiracy theories that do the same thing. Take giant, complicated problems and simplify them into mythic, heroic, spiritual battles between good and evil. Speaking of mythic, heroic, spiritual battles, social scientist John Hewitt sees it this way, quote, In this myth of self-esteem, it is not a story of ancient heroes and military victories, but contemporary tales in which men and women overcome mainly psychological obstacles to success and happiness. 
Its heroes are not soldiers, but positive thinkers who lift themselves up by their psychic bootstraps. When faced with that devastating self-esteem task force report, Andrew Mecca stated decades later, quote, I didn't care. I thought it was beyond science. It was a leap of faith. The edited report would indeed be littered with references to intuition, as if believing were a fine replacement for empirical data. In this increasingly secular society, we're creating myths as we go along, especially myths about our own human potential. And like religious tenets, once pop psychology concepts settle into American consciousness, it is very hard to change them, no matter what the science says. They become like scripture. Attempts at self-actualization focus on making us feel good, and perhaps they can, for a fleeting moment, help each of us untangle our complicated selves and find some kind of peace. Maybe this life is a quest to feel better and to help others feel better too, and that is a noble journey. But there is no utopia at the end. Your soul and the world remain unsaved. And that's okay, because you're only mortal after all. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we'll be talking all about the more personal side of psychological seeking with our dear friend, You're Wrong About's Sarah Marshall and our other dear friend, Alex Steed, who together host the wonderful Movie Feelings podcast, You Are Good. You can also listen to the episode I did with them about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Just find You Are Good on any podcast app. We are so excited to have these two on next week. If you love our show, consider becoming a patron. Producer Miranda Zickler and I will be bringing you a new episode of our patrons-only podcast, Hysteria Home Companion, in two weeks, all about the stuff that we had to cut from the episode. If you liked our last slate of episodes on haunted attractions, consider heading to patreon.com slash American Hysteria to listen to our first episode of Hysteria Home Companion, all about the dirty truth of extreme haunted houses. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria for this and so much more. If you're not doing anything right now, right at this second, and you love our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. And head to AmericanHysteria.com to get some hot, hot merch. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound design by Clear Camo Studios, co-research and co-writing by Riley Smith, and co-produced and edited by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And now, here's a clip from the very first episode of Daria called Esteemers to play us out. 
The next time I start to feel bad about myself... Stand before the mirror, look myself in the eye and say, you are special. No one else is like you. You two really have been paying attention. Okay, there's no such thing... As the right weight. Or the right height. There's only what's right for me. Because me is who I am. Have a great week.